0: Hello, and welcome to the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies at UBC. My name is Gabrielle Dumpies woliver and I'm your host for season three. The Migration Center is located in the unceded ancestral home of the Musqueam people. As we think about migration and mobility in this podcast, we remember that Musqueam people have dwelled here for millennia, and that this place is rightfully theirs. Today, we'll be talking with Benjamin Bryce. He's a UBC historian who focuses on migration in the Americas, particularly Argentina. Argentina is known for its high volume of European immigration in the 20th century, and for its violence against indigenous people as it tried to establish itself as a white nation. But Bryce has found that in the 1910s, Argentina also found ways to keep Asian migrants out of the country without ever putting an exclusionary law on the books. That's one reason these racial exclusions have been largely invisible in the historiographic record until now. They are what Bryce calls a story of absence. So what can the account of one boatful of Punjabi laborers stranded in the port of Buenos Aires in 1912 tell us about Argentina's efforts to transform itself through immigration? And how might this relate to present-day Argentina and the enduring myth of whiteness? I spoke with Bryce to find out more.
1: So this story starts in 1912, uh, there's this major diplomatic row between the Argentine Foreign Office and the British envoy, sort of a, a lower ranked ambassador in Argentina, over the question of what starts in late January 1912, a group of 59 South Asian men show up uh, in the port of Buenos Aires. My name is Ben Bryce. I'm an assistant professor in the UBC History Department. I research migration in the Americas and teach courses on migration and world history. So this is is an Italian boat that's come from Genoa. There's 59 South Asians, and there are ballpark 750 Italians or something like that. 1912 of all years is actually the biggest year of uh, immigration in Argentine history, both before and after. So there's 300,000 Europeans arriving in 1912 and 612 South Asians. So then a visiting committee, it's called, from the general directorate of immigration, gets on the boat and does a health inspection and checks the documents, makes sure they're looking for a few other things to exclude, like uh, single mothers, people over the age of 60, people with disabilities, particularly people like blind people or if they were missing a limb or something like that, groups of people who will not be productive workers for the Argentine state. Once they inspect, then the approximate 750 Italian men who've been on this Italian ship get off the ship and they're entitled to stay in this thing called the Hotel de immigrantes, the immigrant hotel. Uh, it's a massive building, sort of like a giant a warehouse with bunks, and they can stay there for five days and they get a bunch of other services, like there's a work placement center, there's room and board for five days so they can look for work, at least in the city or with agents representing in, things in the in the provinces. So all these things to help them land, get on their feet, uh, and find employment very quickly. And there's a booming economy, so there's not a five days is actually usually enough to help them get on their feet. Well, the 59 Punjabi men don't get off the boat.
0: Bryce was actually researching something else when he stumbled across this file in the records of the London Foreign Office desk. His first thought was, wait, this can't be true. There's no South Asian migration in Argentina at this time.
1: So it instantly sparked a, a question of like, what's going on here? How come... There is this story here of Asian exclusion very much in line with things you read about other places like in North America or Australia, but really totally absent in Argentine historiography and Argentine memory.
0: So there's 59 Punjabi men and they can't get off the boat.
1: These are free migrants. There's a, an image of South Asian migration as a period of indentured laborers. These are people who had a certain amount of means, and but it basically expended all of those means to make it to Argentina. So they thought it was a land of opportunity, a land of it would be worth it to make that decision. It was a calculated risk in this context. The timing of 1912 is not a coincidence. So Canada and the United States are closing their doors in this exact moment. So between about 1910 and 1914 is when first Canada actually takes the lead, then the United States. So the reason they're choosing Argentina in 1912 is because it seems that they must be aware of what's going on in Canada and the United States. And, And the initial question isn't actually only can they get off the ship and can they come into the country? That's why they're stuck on the ship. But another part of the question is can they come into the Hotel of Immigrants? So are they entitled to the services of the Argentine state, which is mobilizing itself to encourage European immigration. So that's also a bit of a sticking point. Are we talking about encouraging European immigration or are we talking about preventing non-European immigration? So th- your question is, imagine their arrival. Their arrival is a little complicated. Anyway, they, they, after four days, a sort of a deal is struck with the, the envoy. They are not entitled to the services of the Argentine state at the Hotel of Immigrants, and they are placed in a job at a British owned company outside of the city uh, working on the railways.
2: En el inmenso
0: continente americano nacion los comienzos del siglo 19 la República Argentina cuyas fronteras abarcan casi 3000
1: Argentina is looking to modernize and sort of transform their societies the, the vision of liberal elites from the 19th century that if if you invite all of these modern industrious people from these modern industrious places, this will make us modern and industrious. So this is sort of to uplift ourselves, we will bring in these European workers to then transform Argentina. So that's what's driving Argentine immigration policy. And then the, the arrival of someone A group of people who don't fit that exact vision of of the purpose of immigration, I think actually causes a fundamental problem for Argentina because it's a country that equates immigration with uplift and also not only uplift of say economy and politics and and things like that, but there's also a desire for a, a racial transformation, right? So there's a country emerging out of colonial Spanish America, with a very large indigenous population, a very significant mixed race population, Mestizo population, and a significant Afro-Argentine presence. So this is the moment that Argentina is starting to talk about the benefits of European immigration. It's with this racial diversity of colonial Latin America in the back of their mind. Discussions of the country's whiteness were shaped by popular racial thinking that lauded the transformative power of European immigration and its ability to dilute the pre-existing populations through mixing. Yet, as Gastón Gordillo notes, the vision of a European nation that has long been seen by Argentines as, and I quote, a haunted and ever-incomplete project, a whiteness that feels under siege,
2: for it permanently confronts the evidence that millions of Argentine citizens bear in their bodies the traces of the non-European substratum of the nation. My name is Gastón Gordillo. I'm a professor in the Department of Anthropology at UBC. Yeah, that's something, you know, I grew up in Argentina. Uh, I was born and raised, and that's something I've kept hearing over and over again, both from regular people, but also from politicians, even presidents. You know, I remember, like, in the 80s, with this guy, Alfonsín, who became the president. I remember I was attending his rallies, and over and over, at every speech, he said, because one of the great merits of Argentina is that we don't have racism, and and everybody was like, yeah.
1: (laughs) So what's going on in Argentina in 1912? So 1910, that's sort of the key, which is the centennial of independence. The Argentine state in this period in 1910 is celebrating the culmination of this liberal project. But the liberal aspirations of 1810 are not actually implemented until the 1850s.
0: What are the liberal aspirations and what are the conservative aspirations? Like maybe maybe take us back a little bit further.
1: They are liberal or there's a, a liberal strand competing with a more conservative strand that wants more of a colonial status quo in many ways in terms of land and power and privilege and race relations. This liberal thinking that is pushing for elite male democracy is pushing to modernize and to build a new kind of society with a lot of trade, embracing ideas of modernity and railways and export economies. Long story short, there's a, a liberal project that quickly fails. There's a conservative backlash, which then lasts quite a while. There's conflicts between various locals or strongmen. Uh, They're called caudillos in in, uh, 19th century Latin America or Spanish America. In 1853, the liberals win, you could say.
2: So there were a series of large and nasty military campaigns against indigenous people that kind of a genocide aimed at wiping out any trace of indigenous populations and whitening space.
1: There is a sort of definitive war and a sort of definitive assertion of Argentine state authority in 1880 It's called the conquest of the desert. It is celebrated. It was on the back of the 100 peso bill. Throughout my time, my relationship with Argentina only recently has this been removed. And the assertion of that sovereignty is making bad treaties and sort of marginalization of indigenous people in very significant parts of what become modern Argentina in terms of the Pampa and in places that will then be filled up with European settlers.
2: So that was kind of the founding moment in what many authors called the myth of white Argentina, this idea that somehow, because of this violence against indigenous people on the one hand, and this influx of European immigrants, beginning in the late 1800s, the results will be this allegedly white nation. And it's quite amazing, you know, if you read throughout the 20th century, there were many, again, in textbooks, speeches by officials, or even by intellectuals, they will say, oh, Argentina is a white nation. We're the only white country in South America, and we all come from Europe. We all come from, venimos de los barcos, is a phrase that used to be quite common until recently. Venimos, that means we, we came on ships from Europe.
1: Un problema enorme quedaba por resolver. An
0: enormous problem remains to be solved, says this 1940s government film. The desert, the native Indian, the aridity, the distance. This and the other films you've been hearing come from a different era in Argentine history, but it's telling that they carry some of the same ideas as 1912. To govern is to populate, it says. Nothing else was the problem. And by populate, they meant bring white Europeans on ships to Argentina.
1: Argentina, statistically speaking, was not entirely of European origin. In their imagination, they were a European country in the same way that, say, the United States in the same moment imagines itself to be a white place, uh, even though there's a very significant African-American population and a very significant Native American population, and there are Asian migrants at the same time. So white majority country that thinks of itself as a white majority country or white dominant country or turns white majority into white dominant. But it's also a country that thinks of race in very Latin American ways that are different from Anglo-North American way. So one thing is they're talking about mixing a lot in in these discussions and that people can become white by by mixing. So on the one hand,
2: you had that mythology of a white nation. But the reality is that obviously the whitening of Argentina was never complete. There were still many indigenous people in many parts of the country. There were tons of mixture between indigenous and Europeans.
1: They recognize that they have a Mestizo population alongside a European population and that Mestizo population can become European or become white, or become Hispanic, these use various terms, through immigration.
2: The assumption was that mixture was a a whitening process. Mixture not so much as the perseverance of non-whiteness, but actually as the opposite, as as a process through which the non-white elements of the nation will eventually dissolve.
1: One way the South Asian migration became part of 1912 public sphere in Argentina was through news coverage of particularly the first group. So there was other discussions of later arrivals. But the first arrivals in January 1912 caught the eye of some very big newspapers and magazines. So one is sort of a comedy news magazine called Caras y Cartetas. in that a picture of these arrivals on the boat that were still in port Appeared. So they, during the four days that they were sort of stuck on the ship and waiting for a decision, the magazine sent a photographer and photographed and then shared with the Argentine public in this very big national magazine uh, the arrival of these South Asians. So this picture emerged. It's only the men lined up. They're all wearing Western clothing, they're all wearing suits, they're all wearing turbans. Almost none of them are looking at the camera. There might be one man who is looking straight at the camera, but there's a group of about 20 men sort of just posing for the camera, being observed by this Argentine magazine reporter. And then there, in, in this picture, alongside the approximate 20 uh, Punjabi men, there are about three European men probably uh, working on the boat. The, the crew of the ship, some of them stayed on the boat as well. Uh, and it's a, sort of a telling example of how the Argentine public is catching a glimpse of these men. From another perspective, tracing this subaltern group of migrants is very hard. So finding a news story about them in a mainstream magazine is quite helpful because there's a lot of documents aren't there.
0: And you can see this photo for yourself on our website.
1: The, the caption of the photo catches my eye, as does all of the discussion of these immigrants in Argentine sources. So the caption of the magazine says, Inmigrantes de la India Inglesa, which translates as immigrants from English India they never say British, they always say English. So the, the nationality is English. And in Argentine sources, the citizenship of these people in the Argentine census, and when I, when I say these people, I mean actually British immigrants, is listed as English. So there's a constant labeling going on that's, that's kind of curious. This goes further, so in Argentine the diplomatic discussions, they're always calling them Hindus. And the British are always calling them Sikhs or Sikhs. So they were all Punjabi. In reality, the vast majority of them was of Sikh faith and practice. But there were Muslims in this group as well. So it's not quite religiously homogeneous. So the the best category would probably be Punjabi. The Argentine category are Hindus of English citizenship. And the uh, British category is universally Sikh or Sikh. So there's a, sort of a series of arguments get made on both sides. The Argentine argument is basically no for all these reasons over and over again. And they sort of fall back repeatedly on various ways of saying we are a country open to European immigration and these people are clearly not European. The British envoy in his discussions with the Argentine foreign minister sort of doubles down on saying well, they should be able to come in. And one kind of sticking point is the fact that they're European citizens to use an Argentine Republican term, that they are carrying passports of the British Empire. And so from the British perspective, they should be entitled to the rights of all other British subjects. There's a certain Europeanness, So they're not just Asian migrants coming to Argentina. They're Asian migrants carrying European documentation in a way that would actually make them different from other Asian migrants who are also coming to Argentina in this period. So
0: let's get back to the fact of how few Asian migrants we're talking about here and how much concern their arrival generated.
1: The reaction is disproportionate to the numbers for sure. We're talking about 759 Japanese, 290 Chinese, and 612 British subjects and 5.8 million European immigrants. 612 is a low number But because the goal of the the conversations was not about the 612, the goal of the conversations was preventing what they imagined to be the possibility of 40,000 or some much higher number. They talk about sort of the potential threat of Asian migration. They're aware of large amount of migration coming out of places like India and China. So these are on a global scale. There's like three places in the world sending millions and millions of migrants. It's Europe, South Asia, and China. And so every time more South Asians arrived that against sparked correspondence and meetings between the British envoy and the Argentine foreign minister. And then they were always letting them in, but they kept on saying, OK, but that's it. This is you. You need to shut this down. You need to help us shut this down. Argentina wants to get to the bottom of why these people are coming to Argentina, how, how they found out about Argentina and their conclusions, I don't think are actually complete i think there might be many reasons why someone would do that might not be quite so simple but turns out according to argentine and british discussions about how this came to be immigration agents or immigration boosters people just sharing information with immigration published an article in a newspaper or more than one perhaps in lahore in in present-day pakistan by the time part of the Punjab region of british-controlled india spreading information which is actually more or less correct as it pertained to european immigrants about possible wages possible opportunities regular immigration legislation in that the country is open to men of the whole world so that's one way that people are finding out about it and then one way the argentine government with the help of the british government and the india office work to shut down this future immigration is they also start publishing notices saying argentina is closed for future immigration there's other mechanisms they stop issuing passports so people can't leave in the first place they have have proof of, of work which they don't have so they can't leave in the first place the way they're controlling immigration but they're using media in that sense to then prevent the idea from spreading further
0: So this story is playing out mostly between Argentina and the UK, with Punjabi subjects of British-controlled India caught in the middle. But what's the deal with Argentina and the UK during this time to begin with?
1: So the UK and Argentina have a very strong economic relationship in 1912 and in this sort of period. Argentina is, uh, along with Canada, basically the main site of British direct investment. So Argentina is one of the main places where British capital goes to make money and give dividends. And to put another way, I read something recently, Argentina gets more finance capital in this period, and let's say 1910, than India. So India is really important to the British Empire in one sense of the word, in terms of commodities being exported and of course sort of the ideas of what the British Empire are. But in terms of a financial history of investment capital, Argentina is more important than India for the British Empire. There's huge amounts of British investment driving the expansion of the Argentine state and the driving the expansion of the Argentine economy. Argentina is a major agricultural export economy, so wheat and beef in particular. Huge amount of it is going to Britain. So Britain is a massive industrial expanding economy. All these workers, their are factory workers exporting products, which brings a lot of wealth to Britain. They are being fed in part by Argentine agricultural production. A huge amount of trade is going on between Argentina and Britain, and a huge amount of investment is going on between Britain and Argentina. So about 70% of Argentine railways are owned by British capital. The expertise that's driving that is British expertise. And of course, then those railways, of of all things, are fundamental then in the Argentine economy in terms of bringing things like wheat to, to market. That relationship is playing a part in the story of how the Argentine government deals with South Asian immigration. Not that it makes them any nicer to the British Empire, they seem to be sort of equal partners in this dialogue over the question of immigration, but the relationship that exists over trade and economic and, you could say, political power is surely playing a role in how this gets resolved. So the very fact that the ideas of the general director of immigration get transmitted to the Argentine foreign minister, who then talks to the British envoy, who talks to the the foreign office, who talks to the India office, who talks to colonial officials in, in the Punjab to say, stop issuing passports to people so they can't come to Argentina. That is partly the, the result of the relationship that Argentina had with, I would say, the British Empire. And so in a sense, it's because of that deep integration and that those connections that mobilize this story of exclusion in ways that would play out totally different if there had been similar Chinese immigration in the same time period. But one thing that sets Argentina apart, and I think this is part of the historiographic myopia in this issue, is that Argentina never passes a law called the Chinese Exclusion Act or the Immigration Regulation Act.
0: Those laws were passed by the United States and South Africa, respectively.
1: There is no law that ever puts in writing, in legislation, that South Asians or Chinese or Japanese or any other group of people cannot come to the country. All they put in writing is, this country is open to immigration from anywhere in the world, and we will encourage European immigration. And so if you look at that and you look at the fact there's not many South Asians or Japanese in Argentina, you could draw the conclusion that this is not a story. And, and you take that one step further. If you're an Argentine growing up in the 1960s or 1980s and you're gonna study the history of immigration, there are not many Chinese or Japanese immigrants. There's definitely not an old community. Your assumption would be, I'll take it face value the assertion that Argentina was a European place, had a lot of European immigrants, and that's the end of the story. There's no law that would make me think otherwise. And so another part of this research project and this, these two publications is pointing out the Argentine state was actually very effective at doing things very similar to other exclusionary countries like the United States or Canada, but they did it differently.
0: Now, Argentina is aware of migrant exclusion in places like Canada and South Africa at this time, with special attention to the fact that those places were still self-governing dominions of the British Empire.
1: There's a famous case of a ship that arrived in Vancouver in 1914, the Komagata Maru.
0: The ship was carrying 376 Punjabi migrants.
1: They're left in port for many months while the, the Canadian officials and the British Imperial officials try to sort out how they can reject British subjects in part of the British Empire, and they sort of come up with some sort of excuse of how they can do this.
0: So in Argentina, when the British envoy says, you can't exclude Punjabi migrants, they're British subjects, Argentina has a choice response.
1: They're saying, how could you, British envoy in Buenos Aires, tell us that we can't reject South Asians when the British empire itself is rejecting South Asian migrants in places like Vancouver in the exact same time period?
2: It's true that in Argentina, there was never a legalized type of discrimination, like the one that existed you know, under Jim Crow laws in the US or in South Africa. There was no, no major plantation system based on you know, a huge slave labor force. And people, interestingly, point to those differences to imply that because we are not like the US or South Africa, therefore that means we're a racist-free society. As if only the South African model or the Southern US model is the only type of racism (laughs) that exists.
1: labor market exclusion I talk about this term in my paper it's a part of Argentine exclusion but since there's not formal legislation or or border exclusion this labor market exclusion becomes really important so they have trouble finding work they in general are finding work only with British-owned companies or Anglo-Argentines the fact they're being shipped out of the city in this first instance but over and over again there's efforts to find them work in in other areas of the country it's not a coincidence right so I mean if Argentina is a European place the most European part of Argentina is Buenos Aires the Northwest, for example, where there's sugar plantations and warmer climate is something they talk about as a place better suited for these South Asian immigrants. So the, the British envoy and making placements tries to encourage them to go to places that in his own mind are more appropriate for South Asian immigration. So he's also participating in these Argentine ideas about appropriateness. And so any support that is given to these South Asian arrivals uh, is also sort of mediated through various groups, the the envoy or you know, British elites or, or employers, railway companies, things like that, managers, who are also sort of buying into a, a partial vision of the same idea that there are places more and less appropriate for non-European immigrants.
0: So these, these Punjab workers that make it, or that they eventually are somewhere in Argentina working, what happens to them? Like, do they make it?
1: Some of them make it they all fade from the official record. So the this group of 612 arrive and then over the next couple of years almost disappears. The, some of these people who arrived in 1912, they pop up again in British diplomatic records from the 1930s because they were becoming Argentine citizens. They married usually Argentine women. So there's cases of clear integration and success and just sort of fading from the official record. About half of them go to London. There was calls on the India office to pay for their deportation from Argentina. And these men aren't deported. They In this era of migration and exclusion, half of them then pay for their own fare and go back to London and then show up and start making demands on the British imperial state in very different ways. But when they're talking about deporting them, the British imperial officials in London, in talking to the envoy in Buenos Aires, say, don't send them via the UK, send them via Marseille. They don't want them to come to a place where they have certain rights or certain potential to make claims. So their very presence is, is causing a problem. In the end, the Indy office pays to repatriate some who arrive and some again then fade from the record. So some fade from the record in Argentina, presumably su- suggesting success. And then some fade from the record in the UK as well. And some are repatriated at the expense of the British government.
0: Part of the significance of Bryce's work is to fill in the historiographic gaps in how Argentina has tried to fashion itself as a white nation. But as Bryce argues, this history and the endeavor to whiteness still come to bear on the present, long after 1912. What do you hope the impact of this research that you're doing is?
1: I think this project has a present-day social value in Argentina. It's a country that hangs its hat heavily on this idea that we are a European country, that we are a country of European immigrants. It's a country that today is a country of immigrants it's, it's a major destination for latin american migrants from elsewhere in latin america and not just from neighboring countries like bolivia and paraguay which is very significant but there's also a significant venezuelan and colombian population in argentina so the european immigration of the past is talked about in present-day argentine discussions about immigration there's a nativist part of argentine public discourse it's not an anti-immigrant country but there's anti-immigrant voices in argentina today and those anti-immigrant voices distinguish between Latin Americans of today and their European grandfathers and grandmothers of the past. And so I think it might be relevant to understand European immigration of the past a bit more and not that it was a project only that made modern Argentina and at the expense of indigenous people, but as a project that itself was focused entirely on race and transformation, and not only about uh, how that pertained to a previous population emerging out of colonial Argentina. But also in how that involved race based exclusion. And ideas of exclusion that are present in today's debates about Latin American migrants were also present in those discussions of immigration around 1910.
0: Special thanks to Ben Bryce for sharing his research with us. Thanks as well to his fellow scholar, Gaston Gordillo. You can find links about their respective work and publications on our website. Thanks as well for invaluable help from Estefania Carlonetti, who searched the archives in Argentina for audiovisual materials, and Mirta Roncagalli, who translated and transcribed them. Thanks as well to the Center for Migration Studies and the team that supports this podcast, including Francine Rodriguez, Atia Yekta and Center Director Antje Ellermann. We acknowledge once again the Musqueam place that supports the Center's work, and that gratitude for it is not enough. For more episodes and information, please visit us at migration.ubc.ca. Thanks for tuning in.